Well, I am Jared, and I am delighted that you're here today. And for our online friends, hey, I, uh, this is a two-way communication today, so uh, get your fingers ready, because uh, we want to see you post, we want to hear you chat, we want to be engaged. For those of you in the room, you can chat too, but we want you to do that online. That would be fine. That would be perfectly fine. Yeah, but if you'd like to uh, let me know that you're uh, experiencing some fire, you can, you can let me know that verbally too. That'd be all right. All right. You say, that Mennonite boy is already, I don't know, I don't know. Hey, I was up late last night, so here we go, yeah. Well, I want you to know that the Roth family got a new toy this week. Does that excite you? Yeah, oh yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, rejoice with those that rejoice, not so much, yeah, yeah, nice. So, Oculus Quest 2. How many of you are virtual reality veterans? Oh my goodness, and hide this after the service. This could go home. So virtual reality immerses you in a 360 degree experience. Uh, You can travel to real places. You can go to virtual places. You can help create your own virtual places. You can game with your friend in Kentucky in real time or, or Kenya or three feet away in your living room. It's a wonderful thing. And we had fun in our family, the four generations, even the 92-year-old. And we laughed hysterically as we watched uh, each other playing uh, Fruit Ninja. And we were gyrating and slicing in ways that we would never be caught dead doing without wearing these glasses and being immersed in this world. Well, today, uh, hey, if you're online, I want you to get your communion stuff ready. Hope that you have an Advent calendar as well, uh, uh, candle as well. We're going to light the candle. We're going to receive communion a little bit later. And those of you in the room are already asking, so what does Advent and communion have to do with virtual reality? And I'm very glad you asked. I anticipated that. <laughs> because I have a proposition that I'd like to run by you today. I believe this. What do you think about this idea? I believe that what you wear is what you see. When I wear an Oculus headset, I see whatever 360 virtual space I want to put myself in. And if I don't like it, I can create my own. I am immersed in what I'm seeing because of what I'm wearing. If today I were wearing the prescription glasses I got when I was age 16, you would be very blurry to me. But when I put on my current glasses, I can see you quite clearly. Well, at least your eyes up. Yeah, we hope to change that someday. That's why at Evergreen, we focus so intently on God, gather, group, give. Because frankly, we have very little else in common. Isn't that true? We are all across the map. You have your own professional or retired or school space. You have your own uh, specific family roles. You have your own political preferences. You have your own idiosyncrasies. You have your own ideologies. You have your own hobbies. You have your own life priorities. What possibly brings us together with a common sense and purpose and unifies us? It is our common primary identity of I follow Jesus. In fact, if you've been around Evergreen at all, if you've been checking this out online and you've been watching some of these 
uh, talks that we've been giving, you know that people who need a primary identity other than Christ follower find this an uncomfortable place because we are committed to God gathering group and giving together around this common identity. What we wear determines what we see. But I want to suggest as I ask you the question, how is your grace focus today? That probably most of us could use a grace glasses adjustment. In fact, I think that life has made for most of us this idea of grace kind of skewed and pretty blurry. So we're going to go right to the source today. We're going to consult the Apostle John as he writes about Jesus. And, and as he opens his story, what we often think of as the Gospels is the Christmas story, John starts at a really different place. Matthew and Luke both start with a baby. Mark is always in a hurry, so he starts with Jesus the adult. But John has had like 20 or 30 years to think about his experience with Jesus physically. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to take a very different approach. So he doesn't start with a baby or a man. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And he opens his gospel with the same words that the writer of uh, Genesis uses to open the book, first book of your Bible, in the beginning. So let's consult with John today as we read. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Pause for just a minute. So the Word has always existed. The Word is the closest closest possible relationship to God the Father and is divine. That's what he tells us in the first phrases. We read on. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Pause for a moment. Now, John the apostle was was Jewish was his heritage, his upbringing, and he's writing to people in their Jewish context. And what he's saying to them is, much of what you believe about the Word is absolutely true. And he simply affirms what they would have heard from their Jewish rabbis. The Word translates the Greek logos, which was a term that Jews used to refer to the Word of God by which he created the world. The rabbi saw the law, the word of the law, uh, through whom he created the heavens and the earth. It was divine. It was God's firstborn through whom he created. And it was light, and it was life, and the word was the truth. Notice all of those words in John's first couple of sentences. He says, much of what you believe about the word of God is absolutely true. But now John reaches in and while affirming those themes and asserting that incarnate word is telling us that Jesus now is the ultimate word of God. And if you receive him, you will become children of God. Let's continue our reading. The true light 
that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of a natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Pause for a moment. This is profound. Membership in God's family is by grace alone. No human achievement allowed. And now Paul, John continues and finishes his prologue with these profound words. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So in his introduction, John establishes the deity of Jesus, the Word. Jesus makes the invisible God visible to us. And now he gushes out grace upon grace upon grace to you. Wow. What you wear is what you'll see. I read this this week. Maybe you'll appreciate it too. Some believe in an angry God, and they become angry with others. Some believe in a God who makes traffic lights turn green. And so they become children of magical coincidence. Some believe in a God of laws and crumble when they themselves break them or become even more stern and demanding from others when they break those standards that they themselves cannot keep. Listen, if my God is a harsh judge, I will live in unquenchable guilt. If my God is life and grace, I will live in life and overflowing grace. What are you wearing? You've already made these three observations. Let me just make them explicit and brief, but they are profound. The first one is that John tells us that Jesus was the beginning before the beginning. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I'm imagining he's about to write, and he says, I'm going to start even before the Bible started. Genesis in the beginning God created, but I'm going to go back before the beginning of the beginning. I'm going to go back to the one that created in the beginning. And here's the implication for you. You can stake your eternity on the one who began the beginning. Observation two. Jesus is life and light that shatters darkness. What it means to you is that whatever is dark 
for you, whatever's shadowy for you, whatever's needy for you, whatever's broken for you, Jesus can more than fulfill. Third observation. Jesus is full of two things. He is full of, same with me, truth, and he is full of grace. Yeah. He splashes grace on us. I have some more things that I'd like to say. But I want to pause with you for a moment. I want you to just pause and settle in. If you're not in a comfy spot online, get comfy for a minute. I want you to breathe. I love that spirit, pneumos, is a word that is associated with breath. When God did something fresh, it was often with his breath, his spirit. When he animated a a clay sculpture on the grass, sculpture on the ground, he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. When Jesus wanted to fill his followers with his spirit, he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. When God wanted to inspire scripture, he inspired it with his breath. Let God breathe in you today. You can stake your eternity on him. Whatever you need, Jesus can fulfill. What Jesus is doing right now toward you is splashing grace upon grace upon grace. You can trust him. So where did things go sideways? I think life snuck up on all of us. I think life gave us frames that limit our perspective of God. I think life gave us frames that are skewed and dirty, that cause us to see blurry images of God. I think that we end up with a distorted understanding of grace. And I think all of us feed that by indiscriminate media consumption every day as we allow media to come in. And as we watch and as we receive, it builds and creates cataracts across our eyes that give us a skewed sense of reality and of priority. I talk with a lot of people who have a a viewed skew of God. I love those conversations. Just recently, I was talking to Jamal. He's 29. He's a brand new dad. And he was telling me that he really wants to raise his baby son in the faith, but he's really skeptical about church. It's not that Jamil has so much rejected God as that he's really rejected the context in which he learned about God because he learned some things that he just can't reconcile. And my guess is that Jamil's story is all of our story. Imperfect people with imperfect experience doing their best in imperfect ways to try to describe the perfect and invisible God. Is that a formula for a mess? Yes, of course. It's all of our story. His particular story was of interest to me. He simply was told that the God that he should see is a God that is opposed to science that somehow that's on a spectrum, God and science. And in his mind was, why would God who has created everything be afraid of a very tool that humans use to discover more about understanding God's creation to us? 
And that was a stumbling block, and it was a barrier for him. I think it should have been, frankly. I think it's an odd and uh, impossible dichotomy. And we had a wonderful conversation about science being a tool that God uses to help us understand the wonders of his power and majesty and of his creation. What's your bad lens story? In my experience, most of us have been shaped by three primary influences. Now, you're going to find yourself, just as I do, in, those, in that list. And so as a result, can we just agree together that we're not going to throw anybody under the bus? But we're going to be real about how imperfect humans affect other people with an imperfect view of God. I think all of us have had parents. I think that's, by definition, probably true. By the way, I'm not going to be very hard on parents today. I have parents. I love them. And I am a parent, and I love me. So let's be kind. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it true that we've had imperfect parents? Some of you have had parents who were harsh or demanding or even abusing or maybe a parent that was just so demanding that you just simply could not please them. And simultaneously, we're hearing about God, and the best physical representation of God we had was the parent. Now we project on the parent, the worst side, on God, the worst side of what we saw in our parents. Last week, I got to watch uh, the new Disney movie, and uh, Mirabelle, who's the 15-year-old Guatemalan lead character, strives to please her abuela. But finally, in frustration, she shouts to her grandma, and she says with tears, I just cannot be perfect enough for you. None of us can be perfect enough for you. And it was an amazing revelation for grandma. And the story moves forward as they try to reconcile that. What's your story of how your grace vision was blurred from this vision of the real God who actually showers grace on you instead of guilt, who actually heals you instead of hurts, who is always faithful to you instead of disappoints. Listen, you have a good, good Father. Get to know Him. A second influence that we all have are our leaders. Be nice to them. Some people think I am one in some contexts. But I know every story, every week, another story. They mess up. They fall. They fail. Some of them enrich themselves. Some of them engage in sexual escapades. Some of them use their power in abusive ways. I know leaders mess us up. Instagram and TikTok uh, creators love poking funds of preachers in sneakers and prophets with watches. And I have sneakers and a watch myself today. But I just want to go on record that my sneakers are cheap and my watch is an iWatch. But do you know that not everybody in the world loves me as much as you do? Do you know that that's possibly true? <laughs> do you know that it's possible that you're actually sideways with me today for some reason or another? And probably your reason is a good one because I'm imperfect too. Listen, we are shaped and we react when leaders fail us in ways that they shouldn't and we wish they wouldn't. But listen, folks, use your leaders to be helpful for you as they can, but only follow Jesus. That's why we God gather, group, and give. 
And so there's parents, imperfect leaders who have failed. And there's this other group of people that call themselves, believe it or not, Christians. (laughs) I know, they're a mess. They are. (laughs) They judge. They gossip. They have weird beliefs about stuff that in the long scheme of things is going to make no difference at all. Right now they're having fights even in their own family and fellowship relationships and church fellowship relationships about stuff that is just going to pass this quickly in the long scheme of things. I know we have our priorities messed up. I know we're goofy from time to time. But listen, let imperfect Christians help you. Because imperfect Christians together form what is called the body of Christ. And there's a bunch of Jesus you're only going to touch and experience in the middle of that body that right now is imperfect, but by God's grace is becoming more and more and more beautiful all the time. Listen, let imperfect Christians help you, but only follow who? Jesus. Yeah. So how does Jesus... Give us correct grace lenses. Well, I think his favorite uh, tactic is to tell us stories. I bet you're familiar with these three. There's a story of a graceful father. The kid left home early, blew his inheritance, came back not knowing that his dad was looking for him every day in the unlikely return. And when the father saw the son, pink, pig, stink, and all, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. That's God's response to your failure. Story two, a graceful leader. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. He will never leave you. He will never fail you. And if he has to die for you, he will. And he did. So he did. The third story. The graceful Christian. (laughs) Jesus told this story, and I read. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus cares for your brokenness. So what's God's like? What's God like? When you put on Jesus' grace glasses and you wear those, what you see is that God is welcoming. He is giving. He is caring. He's healing. He is a good 
good shepherd. Grace full. My guess is that we all need healing from poor grace vision today. I, uh, Ann and I, every year about this time, we receive uh, some invitations from a Dr. Chad, one of a couple of uh, optometrists that's uh, part of Evergreen. And so uh, his office reaches out and he says, it's time for your annual vision exam. And I always experience two things. The first one is, I can't believe that was a year ago. <laughs> and the second is, I think I'm seeing really well, plus I like my current frames. Do you like my frames? You notice my frame? Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to go this year. And then I always do the same thing. I go. And he always says the same thing after he does what he does. So he, uh, he does the little click, click, check thing. And then he does the little poof in the eye thing. And then he does the little look inside the eyeball thing and shows me amazing images of what's going on in there. And then we sit down. We could just hit, we could just hit play. It's the same every year. You know, when we were over here, that was your current prescription. And then when we click over here, which you prefer, that's what your prescription should be this year. Because you know what happens physiologically? Yeah, everything goes south. Yeah. <laughs> Even your eyeballs. Yeah. Gravity has its perfect work. And after 12 months of gravity work, my eyeballs have sagged a little bit more. And I need a new pair of Dr. Chad lenses. Life works on you, you know. Life does. Life is hard on you. We live in a broken, evil, and a dark world. Now, we happen to live in a world where darkness will not overcome the light. Jesus will never be overcome by darkness. Don't listen to those prophets of gloom that tell you that everything's going to hell. No, Jesus is coming back to a beautiful bride. Don't listen to those prophets that tell you that the end is coming because things are going bad, bad, bad. The Bible says that the darkness will never overcome the light. But let me tell you, we live in darkness, and darkness will pull on your eyes. And it will skew with your grace vision. And there will be imperfect parents who tell you you're bad. And imperfect leaders that tell you you have to earn your way. And imperfect Christians telling you you're not good enough. And the world itself will tell you, I think you're going to hell. And you need to come back to the healer of your sight and say, Jesus, restore my grace vision. Because the Bible is clear. You are a God's child by grace, not because of your achievement. It was, it was uh, the Apostle John that introduced us to this idea of the Word, the incarnate Word, Jesus, being full of grace and lavishing, splashing out grace upon grace. And he did that in the context of Jewish understanding about God. Jesus told us the grace story by telling us beautiful stories. And now the Apostle Paul gives us all of that theology in a concise verse. 
I bet many of you are familiar with it. As it comes up on the screen, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Period. No qualification for that verse. Period. That is the theological truth of the gospel story told in Jesus' stories. In the Jewish context that John gives us, God's children are there by right, by God's gift, and not by human achievement. I want to take a minute with this passage. We're going to move toward communion in just a couple of minutes, but, but again, I want you to reflect for a moment as these words come on the screen, and these lines are portions of what we just read. I'm going to, as the coach says in the gym, I'm going to have some tempo with this. There's going to be a little bit of time here. There's going to be a good deep breath at the beginning of each of those phrases. I want to model the way. I'll go through it myself the first time. And as I complete it, then I'm going to go through a second time, and I'm going to ask all of you to join me online. Join as well as we read and repeat these words together. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace. By grace. Grace. Would you read with me? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not works. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace. By grace. Grace. period. I was invited to have lunch at the Portland Arlington Club. Not by any of you, mind you. <laughs> by a friend that uh, I'd reached out to and asked if we could have lunch. And he said, yeah, yeah, come down to the, the club and I'll host you. And, and he did mention to me, knowing that I'm kind of a country bumpkin farm boy, he said, uh, you will want to wear a suit or at least a sport coat and tie because otherwise you can't get in. You know how I've dressed. I might have gone shopping. I don't know. But I'd, I was a little nervous, apprehensive. I drove downtown. I parked. I walked in the Arlington Club. I went in. I went straight to the restroom. I looked at my hair. I primped a little bit. I made sure my tie was okay. I came out. The maitre d' was expecting me. Mr. Roth, he called out to me and he seated me at the table. Then there was my friend and and uh, the, the, the waiter came over, and he had a, I don't know, I guess he had an extra napkin around or something. He had this white thing over, this arm thing over here, and he came over. No printed menus, all, all by memory. 
Uh, we ordered. We're eating our lunch. Way too many utensils. I don't know why they bothered to just store utensils on my side of the table over here. I picked something that looked reasonably so, so, so you know, so, you know, to the, what I was eating. And, and we had our conversation. Can you tell I was a little bit nervous? Yeah. I felt a little out of place. It, it was just a, a little sophisticated for me. Uh, I, I was a guest. I, I wasn't a member. I, it was a different environment. Uh, the, the power, the sense of power in the place just kind of oozed from the paneling and the walls. And I felt awkward, and I did what a lot of us do when we feel awkward, to, to kind of reduce that power differential. I said to my host, I said, uh, uh, let me at least buy lunch today. And I embarrassed him. And I saw him just quickly glance around to see if any of the other members had heard me. Because that was a stupid thing to say. It was a faux pas. You see, mem uh, guests can't buy lunch there. My money was no good there. The way stuff is paid for is that a tab is kept for members and they pay their invoice at the end of the month. And so he looked around and fortunately there was nobody right close and I, I, I kind of caught on that something was going on here and I lowered my voice a bit and he said, no, 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 I'll take care of it. You see, I learned something that day about the Portland Arlington Club. Only guests can come if they're invited by a member. And you don't have to have lunch at the Arlington Club if you don't want to. But if you want to have lunch there as a guest, you cannot pay. It's only a gift. And you'd better not try to even leave a tip. Because then you could go home and say, I at least tipped. And Paul says, God hasn't even left room for you to tip in this deal. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen, friends, most of us got some lenses. Maybe one of them has a pretty decent view of grace. And you can talk about grace, and you can say, I'm saved by grace, and I'm God's child by grace. And the reason I have a right to be God's child is because of grace. We've got one lens that works, and then I will tell you that life, including the church, has taught you to have another lens that's skewed out of focus and has dirt on it. And it says, but if you want to stay God's child, you better perform. The grace lens of John are clear. You have a right to be God's child by believing and receiving the incarnate word. Jesus' stories. Jesus' stories are clear. There is a shepherd that will die for you. There's a father that is seeking for you. There is a good Samaritan that when you are so hurt and broken, you can't even reach out for help, will come and bring healing to your life. And the apostle Paul, the theologian, says, let me just make it simple for you. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even this faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Eat at the Arlington Club. You can't even leave a tip. It's a gift. So here's some questions for you. Where do you need a grace adjustment? Who hurt you? 
and caused you to project that abuse on your image of God? Who misled you in the name of God and caused you to hide? Who demonstrated judgment and hypocrisy and caused you to turn away? We often call these father wounds, pastor wounds, church wounds. Let him heal you today. As we come to communion, we get to light our second Advent candle. Last week, Anne introduced us to hope. And this week, we light the candle of grace. A loving father, a good shepherd, a good sa savior has arrived. An advent is our reminder that he keeps on arriving. We read about his birth arrival. Last week, Anne shared about the hope we have in his ultimate return. Today, we celebrate his present arrival, for you need his fresh grace. The arrival, not for sale, grace. I'm going to ask you to take your communion uh, packet here and Go ahead and pull off the top wrapper at home. Prepare your bread and your juice. Might want to go ahead and take off the second top as well for the juice. Jesus did this at a simple meal. We do best when we keep it simple too. He said, as often as you Eat this bread and drink this cup. Do it in remembrance of me. Today, Lord, we especially remember your grace poured out lavishly on us, making us God's children. The grace poured out through the brokenness of your body so that we could be healed, spirit, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Your blood poured out, Good Shepherd, as you gave your life for us, for the forgiveness and remission of our sins. We eat, we drink in remembrance of you. Let's eat together. And now let's drink.
Last week, Ann took us to the final prayer in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22. The prayer that says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Any of you been praying that this week? Yeah, me too. Today, I want to introduce you to the last blessing of the Bible. In fact, it's the last sentence of the Bible. Written by the very same Apostle John, who started from the beginning of the beginning and now was blessed by the same Holy Spirit to write the end of our codified scripture. And this is what he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're at home, wherever you are, if you're seated, I encourage you to stand as well. Stand up into this grace that we're going to live in all week. And would you all say and read these words together if it comes back up on the screen? Together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And if you like to seal something off by saying, God, thank you, I received this gift from you today, you can applaud. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.